I decided to leave Burundi because I was targeted to be killed. As many young person, uh, Burundian young person, were killed, were tortured by the the police, by the youth of ruling party. Uh, we just decided to to escape uh, to see if we can return to Burundi when the peace uh, will be there. By showing you actually the latest satellite Slow down. Welcome back to our podcast, Slow News in Some Moving Times. The man you just heard is Arsen Aakasa. Arsen is a Burundian refugee who currently lives in Uganda. He fled his country in the beginning of 2016 and ever since he has been fighting for the rights of Burundian refugees in the Great Lakes region in Africa. Throughout his story, Louisa and I, Juliet, will take a closer look at the Burundian crisis and the refugee situation in the region that we often tend to overlook. This is the second part of our special focus on migration and refugees after we last time got insights from the European and more specifically Danish perspective. You can already listen to it online on our website planetmundus.com. Louisa, thank you for accompanying me on this podcast dedicated to Burundian refugees. You have been working for a couple of years now in and on the Great Lakes region, and particularly on the case of Burundi. Could you help us understand the current situation there and explain why so many Burundians are leaving their country? Thank you, Juliette. I would not claim to be an expert on Burundi. However, through my degree in African studies and especially thanks to the close cooperation with Burundians for a conference on the current crisis there, as well as some journalism projects I have done since 2014, I have indeed had a chance to follow the situation in Burundi. A lot of what I'm presenting are findings from academic research and many conversations with Burundians who still live inside the country or in exile. So I hope that I can give an overview of what has been happening during the last couple of years and how the latest political and humanitarian crisis evolved that led to huge migration movements in the Great Lakes region again. Firstly, it is important to locate the country. Burundi is a small nation in central eastern Africa situated between the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda and Tanzania. Since 2015, Burundi has been in crisis again. On April 26 that year, the current president Nkun Siza announced that he would seek a third term. Reacting to this, thousands of Burundians took to the streets in the capital Bujumbura to oppose his candidacy, arguing that the third term is against the constitution and against the Arusha Peace Agreement of 2000. This peace agreement had helped bring an end to the civil war that lasted in Burundi from 1993, eventually installing a transitional government. In 2005, Nkunziza won the country's first post-conflict democratic election. His party, National Council for the Defense of Democracy, Forces for the Defense of Democracy, in short CNDD-FDD, had joined the peace talks in Arusha in 2003. Yet, only 12 years later, it violently turned against the Burundian people itself. The manifestations in Bujumbura that started in April 2015 soon led to deadly clashes between protesters and police. Two weeks after the start of the demonstrations, a group of army officers launched a coup, 
but forces loyal to Nkurunziza crushed this attempt. The consequence was again more repression, including the closure of all independent media in the country after four among them were attacked by the Secret Service. Nevertheless, elections went ahead, and on July 21, 2015, Nkurunziza was re-elected with 69% of the vote. Still, the violence did not come to a halt in Burundi. Within the following months after the elections, the death toll rose to over 500, though numbers vary. The Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project even indicates 1,400 dead since April 2015. Thousands of Burundians got internally displaced. In addition to that, nearly 400,000 people have been fleeing since 2015, mainly to Tanzania, Rwanda and Uganda, just as Arsene, whom we heard in the beginning of the podcast. So the situation in Burundi soon developed from a political issue into a humanitarian state of emergency. Next year, in 2020, elections will take place again, but it is unclear whether anything is going to change to the better, as it is expected that Nkurunziza will stay in power. But the current crisis cannot be explained only with Nkurunziza clenching to power while the Burundian people don't want him. Instead, Burundi's long history of conflict needs to be taken into account. But prudence is required here as well. In the end of 2015, international voices arose, already declaring another genocide in Burundi. There have been already two genocides there. One in 1972 against the ethnic majority of the Hutu, and the second one in 1993 against the minority ethnicity of the Tutsi. But current speculations about a new genocide in Burundi ignore the situation on the ground. So, instead of focusing on the old explanations and putting an ethnic frame on this national and regional crisis, Juliette and I will try to dig deeper into the latest trigger of the conflict. That is the non-respect of the two terms limit for the president and the consequences for the hundreds of thousands of people who sought refuge abroad. One of those refugees is Arsène, who agreed to share his story with us. Twenty-eight-year-old Arsène left his home country in January 2016. Initially, he spent some months in a refugee camp in Rwanda before he continued to Uganda in April 2016. I left Burundi because of my activism as uh, some uh, young person who was engaged in civil society. I have participated in a in demonstration against Nkuruziza against the third term of Nkuruziza as, as it was for other Burundians who wanted peace, who wanted right and liberty, because that third term was, uh, was not uh, allowed according to our constitution. And uh, I decided to leave Burundi because I was targeted to be killed. As many young person, uh, Burundian young person, were killed, were tortured by the, the police, by the youth of ruling party. Uh, we just decided to, to escape, uh, to see if we can return to Burundi when the peace uh, will be there. Now Arsene has been in exile for three years. He was also the chairperson of the Burundian refugee community in Uganda and therefore can give us not just a personal but also a broader insight into the living conditions of Burundian refugees in Uganda. 
uh, actually my life is bad as as it, it is for my colleague Burundian refugees in Uganda because we are actually facing many challenges related to uh, our basic needs especially education and health because we don't have support we don't have job we don't have another alternative to support ourselves the reason why uh, actually we, we, there is no there is no support from from ngo yeah unhcr report is not efficient uh, we still uh, we still lacking some some needs some support because now students are not at school now when we have some diseases we don't have how to to go to hospital we don't have uh, some money to pay to different health center uh, is uh, they are the major problems that we are facing Uganda is not the only country hosting Burundian refugees. According to numbers from late 2017, Rwanda hosts nearly 100,000 Burundian refugees, most of them in the Mahama camp and in urban areas. Among them is Joe Philbert Karangwa, a Burundian journalist who founded Radio Peace FM, a radio program in different refugee camps across the Great Lakes region that focuses on telling refugee stories and giving them a platform to talk about their life in exile. The Burundian government has made the work of journalists very hard. Consequently, the crisis is largely underreported both on a national level and worldwide. Because there is almost no media reporting on the Burundi crisis and no international awareness about the refugee movement in the region, there are also almost no funds to support organizations relieving the crisis. According to UNHCR, the Burundian refugee situation is the least funded situation globally. Let's hear the Burundian journalist Joe Philbert. He will explain the state of the media in his country. As a journalist, I can say that media in Burundi don't have the whole freedom to express themselves. So they are not reporting on refugees, I think. You understand then uh, that they must speak in favor of they must, uh, if not, they may be burnt and drive out of the country like us. And that's why I have decided to create uh, a new media radio PCFM in exile, uh, just a voice of refugees. As a journalist, Louisa, how is it to report on Burundi? Very difficult, Juliet. Lately, I try to write a piece on a source of violence in the country. And even though I have a quite large network in Burundi, and language is also no obstacle, it is not easy and even dangerous to access information. Of course, it doesn't make it easier that I'm not there to do research myself due to my studies. But this is not only the case for me, but for many reporters who got sent out of the country or needed to seek refuge abroad. So, distant reporting is very common when it comes to Burundi. And you can imagine, if the situation for international reporters is bad and dangerous, the situation for our Burundian colleagues is not likely to be any better. In contrary, it is again worse as their own government turns against them. 
As I said before, in the wake of the failed coup in May 2015, all independent media in Burundi got closed, some of them even attacked by Nkurunziza's secret service. Among the persons killed or disappeared since the latest outbreak of the crisis are many journalists. Others, who sought refuge abroad, tried to continue operating from exile, for example by launching exile radio programs, which they diffuse via WhatsApp. There are many examples of journalists from Burundi who work now from abroad. Arsene is not a journalist, but wants to reply something to the dire need for information, so he founded the refugee newspaper. Also, the radio project of Joe Philbert is a good example for exile journalism. Another good friend of mine who has been working in the media in Burundi for decades, but now lives already for the second time in European exile, continues publishing from abroad on a website of his independent media group, still located in Burundi. Initiatives like these are very important, not only for the Burundian community, but also for foreigners like me to keep up with the situation. Especially taking into account that lately, international NGOs, the Human Rights Office of the UN and also international media like the BBC and Voice of America got banned from Burundi. The government also forbade local and foreign journalists operating in Burundi from directly or indirectly contributing to these two broadcasters. So the crisis is ongoing, while it gets more difficult and dangerous both for reporters and sources to get information from inside Burundi and spread it. In addition to this, people are afraid to talk to the media now because of the everyday repression and danger coming from the regime. In a report from March this year, Louis Match, the director of Human Rights Watch in Central Africa, stated that the Burundian government wants to keep the world in the dark about ongoing abuse. He writes, I quote, Bujumbura can close the doors of Burundi, but it won't be able to hide the repression, end of quote. But for real, it is not easy to show and talk about it either. Joe Philbert's voice and expertise as a Burundian journalist are much needed to understand the lives of Burundian refugees in the Great Lakes region. According to him, it is necessary to distinguish between two situations. Uh, the general situation of Burundian refugees in the neighborhood countries can be subdivided in two categories. First, uh, those in Rwanda are very peaceful because Mahama camp is very safe and the security is well granted uh, for urban refugees as well. Uh, second, uh, those in Tanzania and the DRC uh, are struggling uh, for a security uh, where we are assisting for a lot of caring inside camps sexual abuse, people who disappeared, and uh, the hosting countries seems uh, to protect the curers instead of punishing them and uh, protecting the refugees. Keeping in mind 
underline Joe Philbert's analysis and his distinction between camps in Rwanda and those in Tanzania and the DRC, let's focus now on the lives of Burundians in Rwanda. Louisa, you had a conversation with a humanitarian worker there, right? Yes, indeed, Juliette. I talked to Eugene Sibomana, a humanitarian professional who has been working with Burundian refugees in Rwanda for several years now. In the beginning of our interview, he explained that the general situation of Burundian refugees in Rwandan camps is also not easy. But as we will see further on in our podcast, it is still better than the situation in Tanzania, the country that receives most Burundian refugees. The situation in a refugee camp is really, it's, uh, it's the same worldwide. You know, uh, we have um, thousands of people who have been forced to flee their homes They just left their homes without hope, without anything carried with them. Um, and they are, they are living there, they are living there, but without um, without any kind of hope, you know? Because oh, when you talk to everybody like in a refugee camp, he will tell you that when they fled, They thought it will be like a for one day, for one week, for one month, and then today it's almost four years. So it's not really, it's not easy. You know, the camps, they have limited space. You can't enjoy what you, you have been doing in uh, back in Burundi. You, you are uh, supposed to sit down and just wait for, like, uh, for some humanitarian assistance. Some of them has, have managed to start their small businesses where they can get extra support to their families. They can get kind of sanitation. They can get like additional meal to what they, they are provided by UNHCR and uh, WFP and other UN agencies. So the situation is not really good. You know, with the limited space, with some... Um, Like I mean, of the camps, almost all camps in Rwanda are congested. So we have like um, many people regrouped on small land and like for their houses and, and everything. It's not really a good life. It's not a good life. In addition to all the issues that Eugene just explained, the extreme underfunding of the Burundian crisis of the international community adds up. There is challenge. There is challenge in the refugee camps. Uh, there is challenge because the, now the Burundian refugee situation is underfunded. Underfunded, which is uh, like in Rwanda, is underfunded at uh, around oh, two or three percent only. So there is a challenge. Uh, children cannot go to school because uh, there is no funds. There are no funds to go to school. There is also um, challenges in uh, providing qualitative health facilities. Uh, UNESCO is trying with the government of Rwanda, but because the situation is underfunded, so UNESCO normally they use uh, the earmarked budget for the situation, but you know, funds from UNESCO may differ from uh, one country to another. Uh, regarding to the situation which is there. So if there is like a, that kind of cyclone in uh, Zambia, in uh, South Africa, and if we have like other situation, uh, other emergencies, so the Burundian uh, crisis is starting to be really underfunded. So it's, uh, it's starting to be a forgotten case. 
So since its outbreak again and over the last four years, Burundi almost became a forgotten case. But the crisis is ongoing and the country will hold its presidential elections next year. So will this have any impact on the refugee movements from Burundi? Actually, as the violence has not come to a halt in the country yet, I'm afraid it won't. Until today, Rwanda receives new refugees from Burundi on a daily basis. In the month of March alone, there were about 260 new arrivals. Eugene, the humanitarian worker in Rwanda I talked to, doesn't expect it to change with the next year's elections. With this coming election next year, I think if the, this kind of political situation in Burundi persists, people will still flee their country. From what we have heard from Eugene, Rwanda seems to be pretty open towards receiving refugees from its neighboring country, Burundi, and also in the future. Is this impression correct? Yes, I would say so. As Tophil Bear said before, there are somehow two categories of receiving countries. The ones like Rwanda that try to welcome refugees and the ones that don't want or even send back people from Burundi, as we will explain later. Also, Eugene confirmed that impression in my interview with him. Yeah, Rwanda is open to keep the Burundian refugees. And in Rwanda, there is like a, what I can call the prima facie uh, situation for Burundian refugees. It means that every Burundian who flee Burundi and all coming from other countries, but when he arrives in Rwanda, automatically he gets the refugee status. You don't have to go through asylum seeking and ABCD, you know. When you arrive in Rwanda, automatically you are granted asylum, you are granted a refugee status. So that means that Rwanda is really committed to protect the Burundians and to give them refuge. And how does Rwanda handle this principle to welcome all refugees, also seeing that no end to the immigration from Burundi is expected? The camps in Rwanda that host Burundian refugees are all managed by the Rwandan government more specifically by the Ministry of Disaster Management and Refugee Affairs. However, they receive support from international organizations such as the UNHCR. As the immigration of many refugees from its neighboring country also impacts Rwanda directly, I wanted to know if there are any talks between the two countries in order to solve the issue. But neither Eugene nor I have heard of any dialogue between the two governments. I asked him if he sees a chance for dialogue to lead to a solution though. I'm not sure. I'm not sure because, you know, the Burundian government has been saying that uh, there is security in Burundi, so, but the international organizations uh, and also the fact that the Burundians are fleeing their home shows that um, there is no stability in Burundi, but um, I'm not sure that there will be a chance for the Burundian government to sit down and talk about the refugee situation unless because uh, every Burundian who is in a refuge they will tell you that they will tell you that uh, they fled the regime they fled the political situation unless the political situation changed unless everything changed but if the the regime remains I think it will be very hard for this uh, refugees, these uh, men and women and children to return home. Well, still, the Burundian government has told people to return to their country and reports indicate that some indeed do. Why is that the case? 
You know, in politics, nobody nobody likes to have some very strong opposition. You know, when people are outside of their country and they are regrouping in a refugee camp, they have time to talk about the politics. They have time to sit together and uh, think about why they fled and uh, their tough lives that they are living there. So. It's not really good for a country to have uh, people like uh, young people who are refugees in neighboring countries. Like, you know, any, at any time, these refugees should be like uh, a source of, uh, of resistance, you know? You never know. So when Burundians are saying you must come back home, you must repatriate, you must, you must, you must, it's like um, to see if they can take control of that power of those people who have been living outside of the country. When you talk to Burundian refugees, they don't have a willing to return home unless the political situation and the political regime change. But some of them may return as life in the Australian country is not as always as uh, easy. So some of them may decide to return, but not that the situation is calmed, but uh, because of the life the refugees are living in uh, countries in which they have been fleeing. And what about the other case mentioned by Joe Filbert? Luisa, what is the situation of Burundian refugees in Tanzania? As we have heard, Rwanda now also receives Burundian refugees who have been sent out of Tanzania. Eugene explains what he observed. In Tanzania, the situation is not like in Rwanda or in Nigeria or in Uganda. In Tanzania, refugees uh, were asked to return home. Some of the reports by Human Rights Watch from the UN agencies stated that these people were not returning home voluntarily. And you know, when someone really wants to return home, it should be done voluntarily. So what normally the UN agencies, including UNHCR, WF, UNICEF, and other um, humanitarian a agencies, What they do is just to provide the returnee with the basic package because if someone is obliged to go home, they do their job. They just do their job of um, assisting the returnee. But I don't think that they encouraged any of the refugees just to return. I also had the chance to talk to Lucy Hovell about the situation in Tanzania. She is a senior research associate for the International Refugee Rights Initiative based in the UK. As Eugene already indicated, in the end of last year, the Tanzanian government decided to send Burundian refugees home. I asked now Lucy to explain the circumstances that led to this decision. It's a very complicated situation. I think it has to be understood in the context that um, Tanzania has been hosting hundreds of thousands of refugees for decades now. And I think its current actions have to be understood in that context. So it um, has been very welcoming to refugees in the past. Uh, its, its former president, um, Julius Nyerere, was very much of a mind that promoted pan-Africanism and had a very strong pan-African vision. And they have been very welcoming to refugees in the past. However, I think uh, a combination of fatigue and of lack of promises delivered by the donors 
has led to a situation where it's becoming increasingly difficult for the Tanzanian government. I mean, it doesn't excuse its behaviour, but we have to understand it, um, especially when we look at it from the perspective of, for instance, Europe, where we will take so few refugees in and we have so many resources, relatively speaking. Even though they have relatively few resources, Tanzania has also been hosting refugees from the DRC and other countries. Are they also concerned by this decision of the Tanzanian government? Actually, to my knowledge, they are not, no. The decision to send refugees back home was only targeted at Burundians. This can be explained by looking at Tanzania's history of hosting refugees from Burundi, as Lucy says. With the situation around the Burundian refugees, there was a massive repatriation process following the signing of the peace agreement in Burundi, sort of in the early 2000s, and then leading up to 2008, 9, 10, there was a big push on repatriation. And I think for Tanzania, it felt like it had done his, its job then, and that the, the situation should have been resolved. And I think the resurgence of political tension in Burundi that then led to another um, large-scale exile of Burundians to Tanzania was was a bit of a shock. So camps that it had taken, you know, worked really hard to close down, not always in a very um, good way. Um, it was now having to reopen. And I think that was seen as obviously a really disappointing and regressive um, thing to have happened. Okay. With this context, it is easier to understand what led Tanzania's decision. So now let's hear from Lucy what has happened afterwards. Well, I think it's it's been a difficult situation because the Tanzanian and Burundian governments have both been wanting to push for repatriation. But um, um, UNHCR and NGOs have not been so keen on that because they have understood that the conditions that led people to flee from Burundi have not substantially changed. So they've been concerned about the viability of repatriation in that context. So I think that what's happened is um, I think about 60,000 people have been officially repatriated under the sort of official program and they have been given a very small amount of assistance and some transport over the border but then the repatriation was halted i'm not exactly sure if it has restarted at this point or not but it's a difficult situation because there's this strong pushback from tanzania um, the situation hasn't changed in burundi and the international actors are somehow caught in between those two things and at the same time you know what we have to remember is that the amount of donor funding that's coming through for this is incredibly small and in inadequate. And this is one of the core problems. And I think, again, this goes back to what happened before, that the return process from Tanzania to Burundi was very poorly funded previously, so that people might have been returned over the border and physically, if you like, returned to Burundi, but they were not given the tools and the ability to actually reintegrate and restart their lives and reach a point of stability. And it's many of the people who fled most recently who had previously repatriated, but not been able to really reintegrate back into Burundi, um, who fled once more. Louisa, can you explain why these earlier repatriation processes failed? Yes. Also, Lucy mentioned during our interview that the biggest challenge to successful repatriation is the access to land. Land is of enormous importance in Burundi. Over 90% of Burundians rely on agriculture for subsistence. But with a population of around 400 people per square kilometer in such a small country, land is scarce. 
With the return of thousands of refugees, tensions over land access increase. Lucy said that the failure to resolve these tensions in a way also set the scene for the new round of displacement. Besides this, in her work Lucy also has been focusing on access to justice, especially for refugees and returnees. This is again a very complex issue. Justice in Burundi has already been a difficult matter, but when it comes to the most marginalized people, the refugees, it gets again more problematic. What is driving the problem right now is the um, sort of, if you like, the capture of power by a few individuals at the very top. And that is the source of the problem. And that manifests, manifests itself in a lot of different ways on the ground. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, you can't simply say that the problem in Burundi is an ethnic one or it's um, over another issue. It's really that it's a, a, the poor distribution of power. And I think at the local level, in some areas, local communities and local government actors are doing an incredible job of managing the situation on the ground and of helping people who are returning and of, of mediating, if you like. In other instances, they're not. Um, but I think that there is a huge gap as well between this, the need for justice, obviously, and the actual justice that people can, can access. There's a huge deficit of justice in the country. And this is a very significant problem that needs to start from the top and work down. But that is not to say at the sort of community level that people are not working these things out. And I think in, in some situations they are, but they need support and they need to have the, the mandate, if you like, to do that. And so trying to push for change from the top down and the bottom up, if you like, simultaneously is what needs to happen. This means if the access to justice, including questions about land tenure, continues to be worked on, repatriation processes in Burundi are likely to become more successful. But for returning, there's yet another obstacle. The question of one sense of belonging. When leaving their country, refugees do not only leave material things behind, but they get physically and eventually emotionally detached from their home. This impacts their sense of belonging, whether in an asylum country or back home after returning, as Lucy explains. This is one of the things that was um, that is problematic, if you like, with what's become sort of traditional humanitarian repatriation processes, that it's seen very much through a kind of, if you like, a livelihoods lens, an economic lens that people are, as I said, they're brought over the border and given three months of rations and therefore the job has been done. And I think this sort of very complex process that allows someone to um, once more feel like they belong to a state is, is highly complex. And I think what my previous research has shown is that Access to land is an incredibly important facet of that because land is not just about access to livelihoods. It's also um, about a, a sense of, if you like, connection and belonging to a particular place, to a community and to the country that that community is part of. And I think that the deeply political nature of the conflicts that caused people to flee in the first place has to be resolved for people to feel like they are once more part of the polity that they have returned to. And that is a really long and complex process. It needs time. It takes years. It's not something that happens in three months. And I think that there is a strong sense for many Burundians of, of that belonging within the country. 
I think that was less the case with the population in Tanzania who had been born in Tanzania and had never actually lived in Burundi. It was harder for them to have that notion of belonging. And yet still, that was where their, their parents, their grandparents had come from. And so I think it's really important to recognise some of these deeper rooted issues that need to be addressed. And yes, livelihoods is incredibly important. People need to be able to feed themselves and their families. But addressing some of these other issues is incredibly important alongside that, as, as ultimately that creates the long-term solution to conflict and displacement, where people really have the opportunity to belong and to feel secure in that. We have now gained a lot of insight into the situation of Burundian refugees from their own perspectives, but also from the perspective of the receiving countries, Uganda, Rwanda and Tanzania. Migration and the question of how to solve refugee crisis have been dominating topics in the Great Lakes region and have deeply affected the region. How is the situation like on a regional level? We hear Lucy. I mean, I think understanding what's going on in the Great Lakes, it's important to understand that there have been um, two kind of overarching policy failures in the region. One has been an overemphasis on the encampment of refugees. And the second has been the understanding that the only durable solution to displacement is repatriation. What this means is that resettlement numbers have been very low, which has um, pointed to the lack of actual genuine responsibility sharing by the international community, other than giving some money and not enough money to the situation. And local integration has not really ever been given any serious consideration. This is a quite devastating summary of the situation of refugees in the Great Lakes region. That's true. But still, with such a long history of displacement and repatriation in the Great Lakes region, there are good lessons to learn as well, of course. Even though we have just talked about Tanzania's current position of sending back Burundian refugees, in earlier migration processes, the same country, Tanzania, had focused on long-term solutions, as Lucy from the International Refugee Rights Initiative explained. The government of Tanzania, in a very um, unusual and and well and applauded gesture, offered the option of naturalization or repatriation to the over 200,000 Burundian refugees who had fled at the beginning of the 1970s, and 162,000 opted for naturalization in Tanzania. And so that also has to be understood that Tanzania has already offered citizenship to that group of refugees. But this was unprecedented and has not been repeated anywhere else in the region. The mentality, which is understandable to a certain extent, but has proved to be very problematic, mm. has been that people will return one day to where they came from or where their parents came from, because we're talking about a lot of refugees around the region who have not been born in the country of their nationality. And this is becoming increasingly problematic, and the Burundian situation is just one example of that. Um, there have been similar issues with um, Rwandan refugees, Congolese refugees, South Sudanese refugees. It's a very similar thing that's played out across the region. And this links to the, at one level, it links to the broader picture where um, a lot of governments in the region are feeling very fed up by the sort of lip service that the international community pays to responsibility sharing, talks about it, but actually in practice, as I've said, its resettlement numbers are incredibly low. And then when countries are left 
with these protracted refugee crises, the, the funding very quickly dries up. So they're left looking after hundreds of thousands of refugees with very, very little assistance. So that's part of the dynamic. But secondly, it's about there's the, the issue comes to the heart of um, the understandings around who belongs within a particular state and the very closed nature of that belonging and the, the failure, if you like, to offer nationality to people who have come in from outside relatively recently. So that's that sort of sets the scene in the region for some of these these problems that continue to fester and fail to be resolved um, in any meaningful way. With Burundi soon reaching another critical point in the ongoing crisis with the next year's election, these dynamics are not very likely to change very soon. Still, Louisa asked Lucy if there is any hope for the future. I think a lot depends on the um, willingness or the decision of those in power to open up some space for the operation of civil society, for a much more sort of rights-based approach to understanding what is going on. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. I think people are enormously fearful about the forthcoming elections. I would hope that the problems that materialised last time would have been a bit of a, a warning shot and that leaders would take that into consideration and would try and avoid a similar thing happening again. But I don't think that there has been any um, visible and qualitative change that would indicate that that is the case. I think that a lot of the people who are returning are returning because life in Tanzania is so unbearable that this feels like the, the least bad of the two options is returning to Burundi, which is obviously not a good um, basis for return at all. And I think people are very scared about the forthcoming elections and about what might happen. Um, I think it's a very complex situation. And I think that it's, it, it's really important that particularly um, regional and um, the African Union mechanisms hold the government accountable for its actions over the next months and coming years in this regard. And I think that's going to be a very important thing. But as to whether or not um, it leads to significant change, I don't think there's an enormous amount of optimism about that. But I think there is always that opportunity that it could do that. And at the end of the day, I think people want a home. They want somewhere to live, that they can look after their children and send them to school. And it's just absolutely vital that that, is, that the right environment is found for people to do that, whether it's in a, on a permanent basis in Tanzania or whether it's returning back to Burundi. Returning to Burundi, however, is currently not an option for many refugees. Arsene, the Burundian activist in exile in Uganda, doesn't plan to go back for now. Actually, I, I don't have plan to return to Burundi uh, because there is no peace. Now the youth still uh, killed. Now still, uh, Burundians still put in jail without... Uh, reasons. Now there is no liberty, there is no right of civil society, there is no liberty of media. It's the reason why uh, I will return to Burundi where all people will have peace, we have rights, we have liberties. Finally, we asked Arsene what could be done. He has a strong request to the international community to finally look at this crisis in his home country and support a peaceful development there. Just even uh, requested the support from international community because actually uh, there is a different institution 
which can do something uh, here I, I can talk east african community african union and the uh, united nations they can uh, play a major role to contribute uh, uh, to to the, the the return of peace in burundi they can do it through dialogue between two parties opposite oppo, opposition and the, and the ruling party that can be one of solution who can bring the peace This podcast is about to come to an end, but I'm sure our listeners will want to know more about Burundi and refugees in the Great Lakes region. Louisa, where can they access such information? Thanks for asking that, Juliet. I indeed have some recommendations for information from and about Burundi for our listeners. Please note that these recommendations will also be listed on our website. First of all, of course, I suggest following the journalistic work of our interview partners, Joe Philbert and Arsène. You can find both of their refugee media projects on social media. One is called PeaceFM La Voix des Jeunes and the other one Journal Plume du Réfugié. Both are grassroots journalism projects by the two refugees themselves and they report about the lives in camps and Burundian topics. All of their reporting is in French though. For French and English information I recommend to look up Iwachu. It is one of the remaining independent media with all of their journalists working under constant danger. Still, they managed to follow the situation in Burundi from different angles all over the country. Besides that, I get most of my updates on social media like Twitter, using mainly the hashtag Burundi or hashtag Burundi crisis. There you can also find all experts who contributed to this podcast today. International mainstream media rarely reports on Burundi. But I think, for example, about the situation in Tanzania, you should definitely read the article published by our interviewee Lucy and her partner Thijs van Laar that you can find on The New Humanitarian. Well, thank you very much, Luisa, for your insight and many thanks especially to this episode's experts. Those were Lucy Hovell, senior researcher at the International Refugee Rights Initiative, Joe Philbert Karangwa, Burundian journalist and founder of the exile radio Peace FM, Eugene Sibomana, a professional humanitarian working in Rwandan refugee camps, and Arsen Akaza, who shared his personal story as a Burundian refugee in Uganda with us. It is also with his hopes for the future that we would like to end this episode. I'm not doubting that we, when there is a peace, all refugees, Burundian refugees, will will come back to, uh, to, to our country because we love our country. We are, we are facing uh, actually many problems out of Burundi. We, can, we hope to, to, to go there and contribute to the sustainable development of our country. This was our last episode of the Slow News Podcast. Thank you to all the contributors during the last academic year. Valérie, Michal, Louise, Louisa, Méline, Nana and Denitza. 
and all the interviewees that had agreed to talk to us on phone, Skype and even live in the studio. Last but not least, thank you, our listeners, for spending time with us. Slow down. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>